Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning to those uh, watching and joining with us online. What a privilege to be invited to share with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, please do keep it open at Romans chapter 8, but I'm using that as a springboard this morning rather than working systematically through it. I hope you'll permit me that. But let's pray and then we'll tuck in. Lord, thank you for the truths of what we've just sung in that wonderful song, that you are chasing after us and that you restore our soul. And Lord, we want you to catch us today and we want you to restore us. And Lord, you know those areas in our soul that are hurting and needy, weary and dry and pained or scarred. And we pray today, restore our soul. Amen. I've been reading a book about Winston Churchill that was kindly given to me by some members of our church. And uh, I was really struck this week reading it by the relationship, or rather the lack of relationship, that Churchill had with his father. It was essentially non-existent. And in his 11 years at two different boarding schools, Winston repeatedly wrote letters to his father asking him to write to him in return and asking him to come down and visit him like other fathers were visiting other pupils at the school. But his father didn't once write a letter to him in 11 years. And he didn't visit him once in 11 years. Indeed, when he was down near uh, visiting the town where his son was at prep school, he didn't even let his son know he was coming and came and did business and then returned. There is one rare letter that exists of his father to his son. And it's after Winston had left school, left Harrow, and was at Sandhurst Officer Academy preparing for a career uh, as a soldier. And he'd applied to be in the infantry, he'd been turned down, so he was going for the cavalry. And finally, his father writes a letter to him. Let me read you some of it. The first extremely discreditable failure of your performance was missing the infantry. For in that failure is demonstrated beyond refutation your slovenly, happy-go-lucky style of work for which you have been distinguished at your different schools. Never have I received a really good report of your conduct in your work from any master or tutor. You are always behind never advancing in your class, incessant complaints of total want of application come from your masters. Do not think I'm going to, tr to the trouble of writing you long letters after every failure and folly that you commit and undergo. Because I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you say about your own accomplishments. Make this position indelibly impressed on your mind that if your conduct and action is similar to what it has been in other establishments, my responsibility for you is over, and I will leave you 
to depend on yourself. I'm certain that if you cannot prevent yourself from leading the idle, useless, unprofitable life that you have had during your school days and later months, you will become a mere social wastrel, one of the hundreds of public school failures, and you will degenerate into a shabby, unhappy, futile existence. If that is so, you will have to bear all the blame for such yourself. Your affectionate father, <laughs> Randolph Churchill. Imagine getting a letter like that. Imagine 11 years of never hearing from your father. And then when you get a letter, you are just slapped from pillar to post. Churchill never recovered, I think, from this wounded, non-existent relationship and from the pain and sharpness seared into his soul through this letter. Decades later, Churchill would quote this letter. He memorized it and would just cite it and pick again at the scab on his soul. As a young man in his 20s, he actually wrote a two-volume biography of his father as if somehow trying to make connections and reach out to his dad posthumously. And in his late 70s, Churchill was painting portraits of his father and even wrote a little short play about his father where he calls him Papa, just a child reaching out to his dad. He became a great father, of course, to our nation at one of her most difficult hours. But all along inside him, maybe that which even drove him, was this sense of privation and loss, this searing, tearing, hot pain branded into his soul that was there because he didn't have a dad. Or rather, he had someone who brought him into the world and then left him in the world on his own. And what I want to say this morning, I've got three simple points, but what I want to convey this morning is something of the heart of God for you. That he is not a negligent, distant, absent father. But he is a father who wants to be intimately acquainted, intimately involved in the details of your life. He calls himself, he is eternally the father, and he wants to father you. You are not ignored by God. You are not disdained by God. And he indeed has reached out after you. As we sang in that song, he has chased after us. He has chased us through the corridors of history, wanting to establish and enter a relationship with us here and now and into forever. He's written a letter to us it's called the Bible, and in it he reveals himself, and he lays out how we can meet him, and he tells us what he thinks of us. How about this from 2 Corinthians chapter 6? He says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. And why? It's a reference from the Old Testament. It says, because I love you. Because I love you. Well, let me offer three thoughts this morning. Firstly, there is a universal cry for a father. 
It's a cry for a father. Ever since Eden, when humankind, who were loved by God and given free will so that they could respond to God freely and not as a robot or an automaton, and yet we went our own way and we turned against God's wishes and best desires for us. Ever since Eden, when we were expelled and exiled from the garden, and God came with us out of the garden, there has been, as it were, sown into the very DNA of humankind a spirit of rejection, an orphan spirit, a sense of estrangement, that we're not who we should be, that we're not where we should be, we're not as we should be, we're not with whom we should be. Something is not right. We're off kilter at the core of our being. And along with that has come this fear that the Bible often underlines. And it's deep in the human soul, deep in the human psyche. Distance, separated from God because of our sin. God is holy, cannot even look upon sin. This has led to confusion and insecurities and inferiorities and inadequacies and a sense of feeling rejected and of self-rejection, inadequacy. Many recognize this. Ask any psychologist or, or psychotherapist or psychoanalyst or pastor or counselor, they'll tell you that people come to them and they're not even able to understand often the why of their complaint the why of their condition. It's not simply their environment. It's the environment inside them. Something is not right, and they're searching and not finding. They try to palliate it, this angst, this gnawing ache, this cry at the core of their being, by grasping, various different ways, grasping at intimacy. Relationship after relationship, grasping at promiscuity, release after release, or in self-love through driving for achievement and recognition. I think that's what motivated Churchill. Some good came out of it for us, but the man was tortured all his life, and the black dog of depression hounded him. Or others spoil themselves, gaining and acquiring more and more goods, bigger and better houses, more stuff, better holidays, more money, as if somehow that outside them will make them feel better on the inside, but it never does. Most make do and they stumble through life with this sublimated sense of longing and desire that the world can't satisfy. It is a cry for a father. It's a cry to be in relationship with God. The psalmist calls it deep, calls out to deep. The Christian faith, though, says that there is an answer to this. There is a response to this. There is a solution. And that is being in right relationship with God. And God, from the start, has tried to work ways to bring us back to him, to reconcile us to him, to bring us together and to walk together, to heal us and to make us whole. God is not distant. God isn't disappointed. Nothing you've ever done surprised him, so God can't be disappointed by you. And God is not indifferent to you. 
And he is the one who, in this book written down, inspired by the Spirit, tells us he's after you. And he's not out to get you, he's out to get you back. And he went to hell and back to bring you back. He wants you. There is an answer to the cry in your heart. But many struggle. The thought of God, the thought of God as Father, actually stirs up all this angst and turmoil. And often Freud understood this. Modern feminism and their critique of religious, uh, of particularly Christianity, understands that, that often we project onto God our experience of our Father in, as we've grown up. Not easy to think of God as a father when you were un, an unplanned child and told so, and always felt that you were somehow an inconvenience. Just one thought at the dinner table as a teenager, you'll, you can carry and it can worm away at you all your life. Not easy to connect with God as father if your own dad beat you up or beat up your mum or ignored you, or divorced and left you, and you felt abandoned. Difficult to rightly relate to God as father when your own father you couldn't relate to, or rather you did relate to him, but didn't like the what of that. Not easy to appreciate God as father if you're sent away to school and only see your dad at holiday time, distant, never tender. You end up having a relationship with your teddy bear as we see in Bridesmaid Revisited. It's not easy to appreciate God as a father when you feel he was more interested in your work or just in your successes or your super-achieving sibling than he was in you. There was a cry for a father. What I want to say is that your father at his worst bears absolutely no resemblance whatsoever to God. And your father, even if he was the most wonderful father, and all fathers make mistakes, even if he was the most wonderful at his best, is just pale by comparison to the fathering of God. St. John in 1 John 3 verse 8 says, Look, just look. Just see, just behold, just take hold, just get this. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon you. Lavished, not with a pipette. Lavished. That you should be called the children of God. That we should be called the children of God. And then St. John says, and that is what we are. Saints, do you know that you're a child of God and that you are loved and fathered by a true and living God. Because until you know that, there will always be this angst, this dead and leaden weight in your guts, a longing for something that nothing in this world, even the best of things that the world can give, will ever satisfy. Because you're made for him. You're made by him and you're made for him. There is a cry for a father. Secondly, there is a cry of the father. Sure, there's a longing in the human heart for God, 
But I want to suggest this morning that there's a longing in the heart of God for humans. After all, he made us. He made us in his image, particularly us in his image. Why? So that we could relate to him face to face. And ever since Eden, God, not just Adam and Eve and their ancestors, God has been crying out with a sense of loss and dereliction. You see, when Adam and Eve, the story is told that when they sinned, they hid from God. God didn't hide from them. They didn't go looking for God. God came looking for them. And they said, shh, God is coming and we're in trouble. Let's cover ourselves up. Let us put a barrier between us and God. They did it, not just by their willful disobedience of his decree, which was always in place for their good, so they could live forever, but they themselves cover themselves. They themselves hide themselves away from God. And ever since humankind in their sin, rather than running to God for help, has run away and hid from God. But God comes looking for them. When? In the blistering midday? No, it says in the cool of the day. He comes looking for them. And he moves towards them in love. And he reaches out towards them. And the first words that are uttered, by God, are not, where are you and what have you done? They're not, you're in trouble now. They're not, you have let me down. They're not, I'm going to get my own back. They're not, I'm going to destroy you and start again. The first words from God reveal the cry in his own heart, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Do you think God didn't know? Do you think God, Lord, the creator of the universe, omnipotent, omniscient, doesn't know that they're hiding? Of course he does. So what does that mean? It means that God feels. It's a, it's a kind of offering of the loss that God feels. It's his own pained expression. It's not simply that we're orphaned and desiring a father and are estranged from him, but God himself feels that, and God cries out. One of the most beautiful stories that depict the nature and character of God as father is found in Luke 15 in the prodigal story of the so-called prodigal son, although as others have often said, it's more about the prodigal God, because God is just lavish with his goodness, the father. And Jesus told this parable to describe the nature of the human condition and the nature of the character of God. And you know the story well, that the son disdains his father. He wishes his father is dead. He can't wait for his inheritance. So he goes to his dad and said, I don't want anything else to do with you. Can I have my inheritance now? And gets it and goes off and squanders it, wine, women, and song. And he spends it all. And then his mates depart from him and the famine hits the land and he ends up destitute and he ends up having a job where he is feeding the pigs and he can't even feed himself with the pigs are better fed than him and for a good Jewish boy feeding pigs and not able to feed yourself you've really fallen on hard times this is a picture of what sin will ultimately do the further we are away from the father we're just falling into oblivion falling into dissipation. The, father come, the son comes to his senses. He says, in my father's house, 
Even the servants are trapped better than this. I will go to my father and I will say to him, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your slaves. So he arose and went to his father. And then, and this is the magic. This is the divinity. It says the father, when he saw his son still far off, how did he see him? Was he just happened to be out at the edge of his fields that day, having a look around at the fence? The implication in the story Jesus tells us is surely the father's there. Maybe he'd been there every day since his boy went, waiting, longing, willing his son to return. And when he sees his son in rags, a broken, skinny frame, he runs to him. And when he gets to him, he smacks him in the gob and says, what do you think you're doing? It's full of verbs if you read Luke 15. He sees and he runs and he embraces and he kisses and he throws a party. That's how God is. That's how God feels. That is the delight in the heart of God for us when we turn to him. Oh, still far off, he sees him runs, hugs, kisses, blesses, honors, restores, and throws a party. There is a cry in the heart of humankind for a father, the father who is God. There is a cry in the heart of God for us. In our reading, we heard that God adopts us into his family. We're not naturally born like his eternal son, Jesus Christ, but we are adopted. Listen, no one ever adopted anyone reluctantly. If you are watching this morning or sat here and you're adopted, you need to know that whatever the relationship that brought you into the world, you are doubly wanted by the parents who took you and brought you up. And in the ancient world, there was adoption, but invariably it happened amongst the patrician ruling the senatorial and the royal classes. A number of the Roman emperors were actually adopted from outside of the family because they had distinguished themselves as leaders or as warriors or so on. I think when Paul says, we have been adopted, and it's one of his favorite terms, he has it here in Romans, got it in Galatians, got it in Ephesians, we're adopted, we're sought after, we're seen, we're chosen, we're worked for, and we're brought into the family of God, adopted and made heirs. I think when Paul is writing that in our reading in Romans, or even in Ephesians, but in Romans he's saying, look, you've seen how Roman emperors were adopted. It's all the talk in the newspapers today, you know, he's saying. You've heard how we got an, Caesar's adopted a new son who's going to take over from him. Well, God has adopted you. Upwardly mobile. What a thing. There was a cry for Father. There's a cry of the Father, and lastly, there's a cry, oh, my Father. That's what we see here in Romans 8. You've received a spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. The word therefore cry isn't a kind of watered-down word is 
full of weight. It's actually the word for scream. <laughs> it's when demons came out. This is the word crazo, kratzo, to cry. To cry aloud. And there is something very un-Anglican about this. Of when you understand who he is, how he is, what he thinks of you, what he's done for you, the lengths that he's gone to bring you into relationship with him, when the Holy Spirit is given to you as you look to Jesus who introduces you to the Father and that Spirit joins with your spirit, there will be a cry and it's a healing cry. It's a cry that, that expresses that things are being put right and that eon after eon <laughs> of human estrangement from God, somehow programmed into you that it's just being dissolved in the love of God that he has for you. What an amazing thing. That is deep cause to deep. That's a primal scream. To understand, to predicate our relationship with God as Father is uniquely Christian. In Judaism, they wouldn't call God Father. There are the odd metaphors of that. But in, in Judaism, they actually wouldn't even address God by his name, Yehovah, the one who is. They wouldn't even describe him like that. They would call him Hashem, the name, the name, the name. But we call him Father. He is Lord and God and sovereign of eternity, but we call him Father because that is who he is for us. Jesus, it was almost a scandal, the intimacy with which Jesus speaks about God as Father. It would have been scandalous to first century Judaism. Jesus uniquely calls him Father and then uniquely introduces us to the Father, invites us into the same relationship that he has with the Father. What an extraordinary thing. And do you know that? And how does one get to know that? One looks to Jesus. One thanks him. You know, the only time Jesus ever didn't address God as Father was at the cross. And at the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that God-forsaken place, Jesus enters into the punishment and the consequence, which is estrangement from God, that human sins brought on themselves. And Jesus enters it for us so that we who look to him can enter into the relationship that he had with his Father from all eternity. And when God raises his son from the dead on the third day, saying his death was sufficient to cover the sins of humankind, and as we look to the Father, as we look to the Son and trust in him, he reconciles us to the Father and the Spirit is given to us and the Spirit heals and deals with our souls and fits us for relationship with the Father who we go into eternity with. There's a cry for Father. There's a cry of the Father. That when we look to Jesus, we can be healed. There's a cry, oh, my Father. Some years ago, a member of this church came to talk to me about becoming a minister, and they told me their testimony that they'd had a, a really rough upbringing and, and they'd left school without any qualifications early and they'd fallen into the wrong crowd, they'd fallen into 
doing drugs and then trading in drugs and then a criminal background and violence and, and so on. And God beautifully, mercifully rescued them. He's the one who chases after us into the worst places. And he rescued him. And the guy came to faith and married a lovely young lady in our church. But there was always something, this sense of that at away at him. He, wasn't, he felt he wasn't quite right and wasn't quite up to it and so on. He came to see me to, to say that something had happened and wanted to tell me his story. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I was on holiday this summer in France, staying at a, uh, with, a, at a, with a family at a, at, a, at a large home, with several families from this church, he said, and there were some Christian events that were being held. He said, one afternoon I, I was just talking to the guys and I was just saying, what is the key? What is the key? He said, I knew something. I was grateful God had rescued me and brought me, but that there was something still not right, still undealt with, unhealed in my soul. What is the key? And they prayed for me. He said, that evening we went to a church celebration in an old converted barn. And he said, there in the barn, he said, I was still feeling this. What is the key? And he said, and in the worship, I got down on my knees and was calling out to God, God, I believe in you, I trust in you, I've turned to you, you've rescued me, but there still seems to be something between me and you. And I, What is the key? What is the key? He said, as he's on his knees with his hands in the air, he looks out the corner of his eye and he sees a chap get up and walk across. He sort of follows him and they go over to the other side. And there in this converted barn in the side, there was a big old wooden door. And in the door, there was a big wrought iron key. And this guy, this guy, he'd never met him before. He wasn't one of his chums. He took out the key and he walked over to him. And there he was on his knees. And he said, he told me this in my seat. He said, the bloke put the key on my shoulders and said over me, this is the key. This is the key, says God, that you are my son and I love you. And God met him and put balm on his wounds in his soul and began to reshape his life. We need to know this. You can have been a Christian for decades and never been healed of this, never allowed the Spirit of God to transform you and heal that gnawing pain. Some of you have understood this, but then life has crowded in and smothered it a bit. Today, let's know it again. Let's press in and let's ask God by His Spirit to fill us, bring us to the Father, and let us know His love so that whatever lies ahead of us, we can face it knowing that. And that things that have somehow crowded into our life and taken the place of God that we've looked to to help and heal and make us whole, we can put in their right place and know that this is the key. This is the key that He is our Father and He loves us. If the band would like to come, like to come up, would you like to stand? We're going to worship. But as we do, you'll know if this is something that needs work in your life and 
Just bring yourself before the Father and say to him, I need the key. I need the key. I need to know that you're my Father and you love me.